So this morning we're continuing a four-part series called Gratitude, Worship, and Joy. This is week three, and so if you're just now tuning in with us, I'll catch you up briefly to get you to that place. And before some of your alerts go up, if you're visiting with us or watching online, this is by no means a self-help type of sermon series. This is actually a God help us type of sermon series. For gratitude, worship, and joy are all results of the Lord doing His miraculous work in us, to us, and through us. And so uh, just to clarify that if you walk away with, I have to do uh, this, 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 and this in order for God to do, then, then we're starting with the wrong presupposition. This sermon is towards believers that because God has done, how then can we live? And so I, I want us to view gratitude, worship, and joy as, as ways to measure our soul and our health like a dashboard. It's a, some meters to see what's going on. And, and they're interrelated, and I'm hoping to simplify some complexities of the faith so that those of you who are new in the faith or have been walking with Jesus for a long time can begin or hopefully continue to mature in your faith. I think one of the reasons that the church as a whole around the globe is in the state that she's in is because we have a lot of immaturity that we haven't allowed the Lord to invite us to more of himself and to, quite honestly and candidly, to grow up. I'm included in that. This isn't me coming and tell y'all to grow up. I'm saying we need to grow up. Right? And so with that, we grow up by being nursed by the right thing, or in this case, person. And so uh, it's been interesting for me over the last 20 years or so of, of being involved in some capacity of ministry, being involved in business, working with believers and non-believers, some things that I notice are missing a lot of times is gratitude, misaligned worship, and a lack of joy. And so with that in mind, we began by asking this question in week one, what is God's will for me? And we went from 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 18, a, a closeout of one of Paul's letters to the church of Thessalonica. And he gives this, this instruction, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice always. Be reminded of and connected to and reminded toward our hope and joy that we have in what? The accomplished work of God in and through the person of Jesus Christ. God became flesh and he dwelt among us. He honored the Lord fully God, fully man, obeying all the commands of God, even to the point of obeying to the point of death on the cross, as a sacrifice, as a substitute for those who would believe in him, to be forgiven and pardoned and adopted, so that we might no longer be aliens alienated from God, but we're now aliens and strangers here, because this is not our long-term home. And so with this realignment in recalibration of our souls and our relation to God, we then say, okay, well, this rejoicing always is praying without ceasing. That doesn't mean that we skip work for a pray day. Maybe you need to. 
but it, it, it lends itself to this understanding of continual relation. And any healthy relationship requires what? Communication, communing with. And so praying without ceasing is constantly living our life oriented around the fact that we belong to God. We have rebelled against God. God has stepped into that rebellion through Christ to adopt us and to rescue us and to save us back to himself to relate with us so that we can understand in our low moments, in our high moments, in the just mundane daily moments that Christ is with us. So as this praying without ceasing is this constant awareness that we are connected to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, not by our own works or deeds, but because God in his kindness chose to rescue us. And in our obedience and joy in him, we have this life-giving relationship that is consequential and transformational. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. With gratitude. I, I would posit, I would put out there that what we tend to be most grateful for is what we tend to worship. What we're most grateful for, we tend to worship. So for me, it would be my wife, my children, financial security, people liking me, people who don't like me liking me. People who are mad at me being unmad at me. Avoiding embarrassment. I do not like to feel embarrassed. I don't like making mistakes because it shows my own fallibility and limitations. And so when I'm grateful for my good behavior because I don't look as human as I actually am, that leads me to worship what I see in the mirror and quite honestly, as handsome as he is, he is imperfect and will let me down, Amen. will betray me. Oh, I know I'm not alone here. Hi, I'm Casey and I'm a human. Right? And so, but when I'm worshiping, then I'm hoping that will give me lasting joy. And quite honestly, those other things might make me happy, but don't give me lasting joy. We'll unpack that in a minute. The series breaks down four ideas. The first week we talked that, about that experiencing the transformational power of the gospel of Jesus produces gratitude. It produces, it enables, empowers, gives us something to be eternally grateful for. That when we're not feeling grateful, that, that's, a, that's a check engine light. Hey, that's not what I'm most grateful for, and that's what I'm most satisfied, and that's not what I'm most pursuing. Great. That's why the, the, the biblical term repent, Old Testament, change your direction, New Testament, change your thinking, invites you to realign back towards that which is intended and meant to give us ultimate joy, which is Christ himself, right? And so... Okay, fine, but, but as we truly experience, not the idea and give ourselves intellectually to the idea of the gospel, but we experience the transforming power of the gospel, this produces in us this gratitude. Last week we discussed that gratitude, it fuels Christ-centered worship. That as we're grateful for what God has done, and as we grow in our capacity and understanding to understand the immediate future and eternal consequences of God's work through Christ, 
that in that our worship grows more deep, more ongoing, more transforming, and more consequential. A good Baptist professor, he defined worship this way. Worship, and we love alliterations, you know that you're worshiping something or someone by whatever takes your mind's attention, your heart's affection, and your life's allegiance is an identifier of what or who we are worshiping. We love alliterations, don't we? Attention, affection, love, and loyalty, allegiance. And it's super easy to worship the created thing because we can see it, it's immediate, and it's, it, 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 we, whether it's logging into the bank or into your stocks or into your crypto two months ago, Having a spouse or a child say, I love you. And this isn't to smack you. Like, we were intended to enjoy God's good gifts. We were intended to create and cultivate. We were meant to be conduits of wealth, pipelines of it towards things that honor the Lord. But when we make the created thing the ultimate thing, and our gratitude and our worship are aligned in that way, you will lack joy. And your well-being will solely be founded based upon the status of these created things. And next week we'll talk about that, or this week we're going to talk about that Christ-centered worship produces Christ-centered joy. And next week we'll talk about Christ-centered joy compels the mission to see others experience Jesus. So as I mentioned earlier, years of pastoral care I would meet with people, and one question I'll ask, this is what I get paid the high dollars for, is ask you this question, what do you want? What do you want? And a lot of times I hear people say, I just want to be happy. And I say, I will not pray that for you. Then they look at me like I'm a bad pastor or coach or friend, or parent, or husband. Because they'll look, just get kind of crazy. And, and I'd say, well, happiness is external. It's resulting of something else going on. It's circumstantial, so if this happens, then I feel happy. If it doesn't happen, then I do not feel happy. And it's temporary. While joy is internal, and, and, and just to build upon that, I was sitting with a wealthy man who was going through a lot of issues, and those of us who are not profoundly wealthy, we had this secret belief that if we're wealthy, then we'll be happy. And I've met plenty of people driving very nice cars living in very nice homes, many of them, Amen. sitting on very nice sofas, and the only difference between someone who's sad who's not wealthy and someone who is wealthy and sad is they have nicer couches to cry on, <laughs> more comfortable cars to be sad in, really? right? 
Well, I'll buy happiness. Prostitutes, cocaine, stuff, all of it. Guess what? They might feel happy momentarily, but it's never enough. And so I was sitting with a wealthy guy one time. I said, what do you really want? He said, Casey, you know what? I just want peace. Ooh. Where you sit and you know that you're okay, even if you're not okay or the circumstances are not okay or things are very hard, but it will be okay. If someone tells you it will be okay and you do not know Jesus Christ, be suspicious. Because quite honestly, if you're outside of Christ, even if it's okay now, it won't be okay later. And I'm not saying that to mock anyone. I was in that same place myself. But in Christ, all things will be okay. So I'm not talking emotional joy. Now joy does at times produce emotion. Joy can produce tears. Joy can produce elated feelings of of well-being and maybe even a sense of happiness. But this joy that we're searching for, this joy that we're pursuing, this joy that we're self-medicating towards is not going to be found by placing our gratitude and our worship in anything or anyone other than the Lord Himself. But we're so immediate. We want it now. We want it yesterday. I'm guilty of that. And so I'll look for the shortcut, the hack, the cheat to try to get where I need to go. But the reality of our faith journey is that it's not meant to be lightning quick all the time. In fact, Blaise Pascal was a 17th century French mathematician, physicist, inventor, philosopher, writer, and Catholic theologian. And he says this, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. It never wants but to pursue this thing. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. They believe they will be happier. So when people say, well, we're in the pursuit of happiness, we just want you to be happy. It's well-intended. And so don't be a jerk for Jesus and slap down someone when they say that, especially if they're like just in passing or a text message. Don't passive-aggressively send the, the link to this sermon from the website. <laughs> don't curse me that way. No, I mean, it's well-intended. But in fact, happiness apart from Christ Happiness that isn't experienced in Christ is going to flee. So if it's your health or your appearance or your status or your stuff or your relationships, all those things are reminders of a great and generous God. But they were never meant to meet that deep soul need. In fact, John Piper puts it this way. The root of our sinfulness is the desire for our own happiness apart from God and apart from the happiness of others in God. All sin comes from a desire to be happy, cut off from the glory of God, and cut off from the good of others. 
So seeking happiness outside of the glory of God, all of who God is, and then others coming to experience that glory and realizing that glory is fundamentally where sin comes from. And so as I said, we're going to dig into this today. Christ-centered worship produces Christ-centered joy. In James chapter 1, verses 2-4, through 4, James, the brother of Jesus, who doubted Christ until Christ later saved him and made him a leader in the church, writes to the church that is scattered, the Jewish believers in Christ who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And he gets to this point after his initial greeting, he says this. He says something very crazy and provocative. Count it all joy sold i'm in i want to count everything joy i want joy let's stop there i'll just preach on that you'll like me afterwards and tell me what a great sermon it was but we have to keep going count it all joy my brethren and and actually in the greek it's it's brothers and sisters brethren when you meet trials of various kinds when you go through hard stuff when life doesn't go your way when the market takes a plunge, when your health flees, when your marriage is on the rocks, when your child is disobeying, when someone you love passes, when what you think should be working isn't working, when your faith isn't producing the same emotional high that it once produced early on in your faith journey, when your quiet times aren't as fruitful because the baby's screaming in the other room, whatever. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you face trials of various kinds. Well, it does draw out a question. Why? That's a fair question. Why? Why? What? That's crazy talk. I heard of a man that, that I, think, I think he's still, he's in his hundreds, but when he turned to hundred. The type of leadership he had was he's very spry and active and everything else. But one of the things that he said was anytime someone brought a problem to him in his company or his office, he said, oh boy, an opportunity to learn. I hope by 90 I have it all figured out. So this guy's a little slow, I guess. But it's this opportunity. He says, hey, count it all joy. Now, if you're not finding your gratitude founded in the accomplished work of Christ and your worship, the thing or person that you're giving your attention, affection, and allegiance to is anything other than God himself and understanding that God's purpose in us and through us in this life is to become more and more like Jesus, then if that vision and that mission isn't our vision and our mission, everything else that happens to us will be quite offensive. When things happen that don't go my way, my first inclination is to be offended or embarrassed or afraid or worried. I am deeply OCD, obsessive compulsive that my worry, it's called superstition, will produce a better outcome if I give more energy worrying towards it. Turns out, doesn't work that way. 
But if I've learned to take that energy and move it towards prayer and hope and service and reminding myself of the nature and the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God, even when I'm not faithful and the promises of God and the purposes of God, then as I'm worshiping in that way, as I'm looking to be grateful for the fact that I am known by Jesus, I am loved by Jesus. I am forgiven by Jesus. I am accepted by Jesus. I am saved by Jesus. And as that becomes a deeper, more profound reality, even in my brokenness, in my sin, even in my inabilities to live a life that is honoring to the Lord, even when I am making my wife or my children or my stuff or my friendships or my possessions or my business or my ministry or my buttery deep voice or whatever it is, the ultimate thing. He still chooses to love me. And if I know, I remember when I was living in some duplicitous double life type things Showing up on Sunday one way and and having some deep stuff, especially early in my faith journey, early on, I would avoid coming to the Lord, coming to church, believing that I could treat Him like my other parents who were human and hide or blame or lie. But I can't. And so in that, He says, come on, come back. I already know. I didn't die so you can keep doing that and hiding and, and, and being away from fellowship with me and, your, and my people. I did that so you could quicker and quicker come back home. Come back home. Turn back. You don't, have to, you don't have to drag it out. We know how the story ends. It's called destruction. Don't go there. Come back. Count it all joys, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know, and if you don't, this will be a new knowledge. Here's why. If you're wondering why in the world would I think that way, here's why. I'm not going to go some other page in Scripture. I'm going to stay right here. For you know that the testing of your faith, the movement of your muscles, the thinking in your mind, the alignment of, the trusting when you can't see, the, the, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. How are we going to last? How are we going to run this race if we don't have any steadfastness, perseverance, the ability to keep going, firmly fixed in place? For you know that the testing of your faith, what is faith? The confident assurance of what we hope for is going to happen, the evidence of things not yet seen. The testing of your faith, the working out of your faith produces the steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. You want a full effect? You want to be unmovable by the waves of this life and by the wind of this life? Then you don't have to work on yourself. You get to lean into the one who knows you and chooses to love you in spite of you and has redeemed you and empowers you and enables you to fall forward and to get up and he carries you when you don't have the strength. And 
we might feel offended when we're tested. I know I have. But I, I, I can't dare think I'm actually better than Jesus. Because in Matthew chapter 4, interesting thing happens. Into Matthew 3, baptized, comes out of water. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Doves fly, all the things. Matthew 4, and then Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted. Why is God picking on me? He's not. He's growing you. You're not finished. Hey, everyone, check your pulse. You have one? You're not done. Stop living like you're done. You're not finished yet. I'm not finished yet. I'll probably look back on this sermon in a few years and be like, that was so embarrassing. But the Lord in His kindness hopefully will deliver a, 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 a truth that transcends the fallibility of any preacher. This isn't a fast path to happiness. This is a slow grind of the, of the stone as, as the creek is running through it to, to delve out and to dig out a deep faith that stands firm so that the roots go deep into the One in whom has promised to hold us fast. And we're going to mess up as we struggle, and we're going to have... And again, I'm not just speaking to emotions. Emotions are an overflow of that which is going on in us, around us, and through us. I had to learn as a feeler many years ago that my faith cannot be contingent, measured by what I'm feeling that day. I feel lots of things, and most of those things lie to me. And so as I become more at peace with that reality, I'm able to ask better questions, and I'm able then to go back to what is true. Not to be right, but so that I can be helped. And let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Sanctification, being more like Christ. So the first thing we see is that Christ-centered worship produces an enduring joy in all circumstances. It's lasting. It's moving. It's not, that doesn't mean, Christian, that we don't feel sad. It doesn't mean that we don't experience anger. It doesn't mean that we don't feel afraid or guilty or experience shame. It doesn't mean that our human experience doesn't stop. I was commenting to a friend of mine um, a week or two ago saying that I think that different expressions of Christianity, different denominations, have a tendency either to elevate humanity at the expense of God's divinity and His divine willingness to change our human pathway. And so some denominations or expression enable people just to go on sinning and they believe that, hey, God will forgive you anyways. I think that's not biblical. At the same time, the, the circles I tend to gravitate towards have a, a tendency to elevate the divinity while ignoring the reality of humanity. That a lot of the reasons why we feel, think, do, act, etc. isn't just so simple as we're just choosing to be ungodly. In fact, our theological framework is we are ungodly in our nature. <laughs> right? Fundamentally. Through and through, on, left to our own devices, we will not choose God. God, though, in a way, makes it possible through His grace in Christ that we might, and we do. Right? So, so 
This enduring joy is, is, is an investment. It's an ongoing, it's, it's, it's a GPS of your soul that I don't feel joy right now and I'm really mad this is happening. Is a, it's called a confession. Agreeing with God. God, your word says I should count this joy. I am not. There's a misalignment here. And then what I've learned as I've grown in my faith journey, 25, 26 years now, is that sometimes it takes years before I can look back and be like, oh, that's what you are up to. Right? And it deposits a little more trust. There's a little more equity in that relationship. So that when hard times come, I'm still quick to freak out at times and to be scared or worried or concerned, but I'm less inclined now to stay in that space. I had one seminary professor, very conservative guy, Southern Baptist guy, and he said this, he said, he said, Christian maturity should be measured not only by less sin, he says, but I think it's even more important to measure it by the time between when we sin and when we repent becomes shorter. That what used to take months of rebellion now is minutes. And then maybe even sometimes temptation happens and you choose, I don't have to go that way any longer. I'm going to say no this time. And identifying it, becoming more aware. Uh, young married couples, there is hope for your husband if he knows the Holy Spirit. Older married couples, there's hope for your husband if he knows the Holy Spirit. And the other way goes as well, but I'll speak to what I know personally. James 1, let's bounce up to verse 12 through 15. He goes on explaining, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The second thing we see is Christ-centered joy is rooted in the promises made, and I would add, and kept, and it carries hope for the future. This joy is founded not in your ability to feel, but in the promises that have been made and have been kept in Christ. There's a promised reward here. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Do you love the Lord? Do you love Him through Christ and Christ alone? There is a crown awaiting through the perseverance that is lasting and eternal. And this crown is not earned. It is bestowed onto you, calling you son and daughter through the accomplished work of Christ alone. And He says, you are mine and I prove it that you are an heir of my kingdom. So as we start thinking better, as we start worshiping with our whole soul and our whole mind, we can ask questions like, how then does the believer remain steadfast? One, through relationship. If, if your whole success goal in your faith in Jesus is based upon what you do for God, one, that isn't the gospel, and number two, when you're unable to do for God, you will not find any joy whatsoever because you're basing it on your performance, not on His. 
So this relationship has to be founded on trust. It has to be communicative. We communicate, pray, listen, hear from the Word, hear from other believers, receive correction and direction from God's Word and other people in our lives. But this relational context leads us to understanding and knowledge of the ways of Jesus. I was speaking with a friend this week who has been hurt by the church. You mean a whole bunch of sinful humans hurt each other sometimes? And if you're new to church, let me just break the ice for you. Yes. And hopefully one day they'll say, I'm sorry. Sometimes we don't. So, yeah. So if you're, if you're hoping in your church to be your faith, you're going to be sorely disappointed. I always tell my friends, if you find the perfect church, please leave. Because you are going to mess it up. I know you. That's true for me. If I find a church like this, way too good, too perfect, I'm going to just go back on up. Walked in here, I was like, they're just as jacked up as me. Let's go. Y'all are awesome and you're jacked up in this, but humanity, am I right? And that, that, to finish my thought, I think we get stuck in our, uh, the earlier thought of divinity with ignoring humanity. And I think the way that we walk in balance is understanding that Jesus was fully God, fully man, tempted in all ways, yet without sin. So he can empathize, he can mediate, he can be priestly toward us with the Father, understanding the pressures. So a believer remains steadfast through our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with other believers. There's times where other believers have held up my arms, as it were, when I didn't have it in me, if I didn't feel like following the Lord, whether it be my wife or some close friends that have carried me through the dark seasons, through broken seasons. And as I shared last week, and you'll hear me say often, as long as the Lord would permit me to share here, is that temptation is actually an invitation. Temptation is an invitation to worship. Temptation will invite us to either worship the Lord and obey His commands, or it will tempt us to do what we ought not do. It's a misalignment of our worship, misalignment of our direction, but temptation ultimately is an invitation to worship either the Lord by resisting the devil or by giving in to the devil, thus sinning against the Lord. But rather than us be so dismayed by the temptations we experience, we begin to look at it differently as an opportunity to worship. We are worshipers. Temptations all also a reminder of our need of being saved, that we are not God. And as the quote from John Piper earlier shared, that our happiness derived from seeking happiness in anything or from anything else other than the Lord ultimately not only robs us from our joy in God, but the joy that comes from leading others to know him as well. He actually puts it this way. John Piper says, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. So that when hard times come and life is difficult, that that the Spirit of God is at work. And in fact, Paul writes in Galatians 5, verses 22 through 24, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The, the, the thing that rang, rings true, I remember reading this passage when I was 21 years old, struggling with impure sin, and since there's kids here, looking and doing things that I shouldn't be looking at or doing. If you need further explanation, find me afterwards. And this verse nailed me, verse 24. It spoke to my very core of my identity of who I am now in Christ. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In case you don't know what happens to flesh when it's crucified, it dies. And so that which was once so controlling and lording over me no longer had the same permissions. No longer had the same right. For the first time ever, I could say, I don't have to do those things. I may still choose to, but I'm no longer obligated to my flesh and to sin because I'm now a slave of Christ. I'm not perfect. I have plenty of other errors, and I've been in this community long enough with some of you that you're well aware. My doctor's even here. He knows all my problems. So I'm not coming as the hypocrite. I'm coming as a fellow hypocrite needing grace. The third thing and final thing we see is the true source of lasting and enduring joy is in God's gift of His Holy Spirit. And so when He commands us to rejoice, when He tells us to count it all joy, when He says, return to the source of your joy, be joyful always, pray without ceasing, for this is God's will in Christ Jesus for you, we will pray the way Augustine prayed, Father, Command what you will and grant what you command. So we can come and say, Lord, I am not grateful in you right now. I am not worshiping you right now. I am not experiencing this joy. You promise I admit that. I need a miracle. I need heart surgery in the way only you can do. And if you're here and you've never experienced that type of gratitude and worship and joy, then perhaps the Lord is inviting you today to place your hope and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ so that in Him and through Him, this gratitude and this worship, this joy, this alignment of stepping into who and how God has made you and intended you to be can be realized for the very first time. That while we were alienated from God and in our sin obliged to worship the things that our flesh was inclined to worship through Jesus Christ, we're now given a new heart. He does heart surgery. He removes a heart of stone, replaces it with a heart of flesh. He revives us in our spirit so that we may once again long for the things that we were intended to long for, to worship the one we were created to worship, that we are able to experience a profound and lasting joy that isn't always marked with happiness or giddiness. Doesn't mean that we don't experience sadness, but despair no longer has a home because our hope is secure. But that takes a daily, ongoing realignment and effort that was never intended to be done on your own in isolation. But to be done in community with the Lord and with the Lord's people so that we might be spurred on towards love and good deeds. Christ-centered worship produces Christ-centered joy. Let's pray.